Um, okay, right, let me introduce um, Richard McCracken, who's the head of intellectual property rights. Is he still in LTX? Yes. Oh, right, yes, uh, part of LTX. And Richard's going to speak on, uh, on copyright uh, issues for about 20 minutes, and then we'll have a little bit of time left then, hopefully, for, um, for questions uh, and contributions. I'm really looking forward to this because I, I was asked to come and talk um, about copyright at an audience that I thought was mainly directed towards research work and it looks like there are people from all over the place, some of whom know more about it than I do. Um, but I think that in, in similar sessions in the past, one of the most useful things about uh, sessions with a very mixed or wide audience is that actually people work with copyright and intellectual property across all kinds of aspects of the university and that in coming together and sharing experience, we kind of put the problems or the, the issues in a three-dimensional kind of way. So I'd really encourage you to ask questions and, and share experience, and, and that's a really useful way of getting the most out of today. Um, what I've got is a very short um, skeleton kind of presentation, which will raise some of the issues and fill in some of the background to copyright and how it works. But it's really just that, just a skeleton to hang around um, the rest of the discussion and the, and the kind of workshop activity that I think will be where you get most value out of today. Um, I want to start by placing uh, copyright in some kind of context because sometimes you hear people use the phrase intellectual property as though it were synonymous with copyright. And uh, it's not. That can be quite confusing. And sometimes people also talk about protecting my intellectual property rights, meaning um, uh, the rights in their thoughts, really. Um, now, intellectual property is a range of uh, law uh, which protects the product of our minds, but it doesn't necessarily protect our thoughts. Um, and uh, it's, it's, this, is, this is boiling things down a bit but it boils down to around four areas of, of law. So intellectual property covers these areas. It covers patents, which protect uh, novel and new inventions, which have a practical application. And there's a formal registration process to go through if you want to get a patent. And if anyone here is interested in getting a patent, then you talk to Innovation and Enterprise, and that's where it's handled in the, in the Open University. Trademarks identify goods and services. So it could be, you know, we're all familiar with trademarks. We live in a world where we shop and, and uh, do activities according to brand loyalty and, and trademark. And again, there's a, there's a formal registration process to go through. If you, if you want to establish a trademark and protect it, then there's a formal process to go through. Um, copyright, unlike those other two, doesn't have a formal registration process. It's quite an informal kind of protection that you get in order to get the protection. Of course, there are formalities about the law and how it operates, but you don't have to go through a formal registration process in order to get copyright protection. And it protects works in which the ideas are expressed, not the ideas themselves. So if I have a great idea for a novel where two people uh, meet, fall in love, and then have a misunderstanding, fall out of love, and then through a quirk of the plot, uh, later on they meet again and, and realise that they were in love all that, all that time and really that they were meant for each other. If copyright protected ideas, then once that plot had been written, no one else could write a romantic novel again. Um, so 
what it what it protects is that I've that Jane Austen has written that plot in one particular way, and I'm now writing it in another particular way with using my words and my means of expression. Uh, know-how is something that protects confidential information, and that <coughs> covers anything from I may have a great idea for a project or for um, a television series. I can't make it myself. I haven't got enough money. I haven't got the knowledge. Um, but I, so I need to. I need to interest uh, a producer, a production company, or um, an investor. And I'm worried that if I tell them my good idea, they'll take that idea and go and express it themselves and benefit it from them and steal it from me. Um, so know how um, protects that kind of information, that kind of uh, inside knowledge. It might be how to do something. And it might be an idea. And how you protect that is through a range of confidentiality agreements where you sign, in effect, a contract before entering into the relationship saying that you undertake to keep that information confidential. Now, if you look at something that's quite well known, let's, let's say a Coca-Cola bottle, you can see that um, a range of intellectual property is embedded within that one object or that one process. So there's a patent which protects or could protect the means of making Coca-Cola. <coughs> Trademarks are all over a Coca-Cola bottle. The bottle shape itself is a trademark. That classic Coca-Cola bottle shape is a trademark. The color, um, the logo, and so on, they're all protected as trademarks. Uh, copyright protects, um, may, may protect the writing and, and the get-up of the, of the bottle itself. And know-how, interestingly, Coca-Cola and other um, big organizations like that sometimes choose not to protect under, let's say, patent, because in order to get the patent, you have to disclose what your invention is and how it works. They instead choose to protect really uh, confidential information under know-how or confidentiality agreements. So that the recipe, say, for Coca-Cola and how it's put together may be uh, known by a very few, a very small number of employees, each of whom doesn't know the whole process. And they sign very tight confidentiality agreements so that even after they cease to be employed by Coca-Cola, they have undertaken not to disclose the secret ingredients to anyone else. Um, so let's go on. We're, we're really here to talk about copyright. Um, the question is, who owns copyright? Well, in the first instance, it's the author. And in copyright terms, that's the person who creates the work. So it may be uh, an author, as we understand it, a writer, or it may be a photographer or an artist and so on. Um, there's also a kind of override to that, which says that if you are employed to do something, then the work that you create in, your, in the course of your employment is owned by the employer. Now, what's meant here by the course of employment is not necessarily between nine and half five in the office. It's what you're employed to do. I'm employed to do this. The university owns copyright in this presentation. I'm not employed to sing. You'll all be glad to know. So if, uh, and I'm, but I'm part of LTS. Now, let's say that an, M an LTS media development team is looking for someone to sing and they think that I've got a good voice and they ask me to sing, to lay down a backing track, 
That's not why the university employs me, and therefore the university would need to take care of copyright in my singing, in my performance, um, before making use of that recording. Um, ownership has to be, if you're talking about ownership of copyright in its entirety, copyright can only be transferred in writing. Um, now, one of these, uh, what, what comes of this, if I just stop here and, and explore something in, in a bit more detail, because of this informality, there's no mention here of having to register copyright beforehand. Um, what, the notes that you're making now are, are protected by copyright. And as we go on through the seminar, it's simply that the copyright work gets a bit longer. Um, you don't have to put the little C in a circle symbol up. Um, you don't have to do any, anything. And that in itself, although it's a real advantage, um, is also um, carries some risk to it. And in uh, university collaborations, for example, you often find that uh, researchers from departments in several universities will agree to get together and collaborate. Now, they may get on, they probably do get on very well, um, and they may forget about a contract. Um, and the work has started before they actually get a contract in place. As long as they continue to agree, that's probably okay. But it's quite often the case that at some point, uh, there will be a, an opportunity to exploit the output of the research collaboration um, commercially. And at that point, you then start to get into problems about who owns copyright in the finished output. Uh, we may all have agreed that we're making equal contributions to the project. I'm putting money in, Giles is doing the writing, someone else's academic expertise, and so on. Um, but actually, it's the person who's the author who owns copyright, so it would be Giles and his institution, in that, in that example, who would own copyright. And the rest of us would be uh, a bit aggrieved that, that he owned copyright in that. So you really need to get the contract sorted out before the work starts. Once the work has started, it's too late. It can also, um, ownership itself can only be held by a legal entity, someone who's or something that's capable of owning something. So quite often another mistake that people fall into is that um, it'll be owned by the res research project. We'll put it together a research project and we'll call it uh, you know, FRED, and the copyright in this uh, research output will be owned by FRED. But it's really, it doesn't exist, FRED, other than as a, an agreement between several institutions. It has no legal standing in its own right, and so it's incapable of owning copyright. So in the, in the most uh, basic way, ownership would either fall to an individual or a group of individuals who have agreed to share it between them, or to an institution or a group of institutions. One of the things that you can do with copyright um, is also that you can commit yourself to um, uh, sharing or transferring or selling or owning copyright in work that has not yet been produced. So I can come to an agreement with my um, record company that um, I will do another 12 albums with them and they will own copyright in all the songs in those 12 albums. So that's before the event. It can also, and this is the most common way in which copyright is used and manipulated and traded, is not as a single thing itself, not as a, a, an entity, but as slices cut from copyright. So it's bundled and split into rights, which are then traded as kind of subdivisions of copyright. And the last thing I want to say about copyright on this slide is that it's a negative right. 
I don't mean it's a bad thing to have. I mean that what it does is it gives you the right to say no uh, to a number of what we would call restricted acts. And that's how the world goes around. If I can say no to all these things, your best way of persuading me to say yes is to offer me some money. So what is protected by copyright? Well, it breaks the world down into a number of categories of works. Literary works, which include all those things that you'd normally expect to see, plus in the UK computer programs are protected as literary works. The thing to say about this is that literary works in copyright terms don't have to have any literary value other than being written in some way. It doesn't have to be the next great novel. Um, musical works, dramatic works and artistic works. Films are protected, sound recordings, broadcasts, cable transmissions, typographical arrangements. That's If I'm a publisher and I'm bringing out a new edition of uh, Jane Austen, the novel itself is well out of copyright, but my, my effort and investment in choosing the layout of the page and investing in pr producing a new edition <coughs> is protected um, under a typographical arrangement because I've put in some time and effort and money in designing a new page. Performances are protected. And you may recently have seen a, a, a lot of um, controversy in the press where um, the music business was wheeling out performers like Cliff Richard to say that uh, the protection for performances should be extended. And that's because um, his performance of uh, some, I can't remember a Cliff Richard song from the 50s actually. Um, <clears throat> His, his copyright in that performance was about to expire and he's not someone who writes his own material and so all that he owns in those classic recordings was the right in his performance. So he wanted to extend that right. Um, designs we'll forget about here. This is not a kind of artistic design. We're talking about designs for light switches, car exhaust tube uh, pipes and so on, you know, registered designs. Um, and why it's important to know whether your uh, work falls into one of those categories or not is that, um, first of all, if it doesn't, if it can't be categorized into one of those um, groups of works, it doesn't get protection. But secondly, the duration varies according to which type of work you've done. So literary, dramatic, musical and artistic works, the copyright in that runs for 70 years after the death of the author. The same applies for the film, um, but you can see the point I was making about Cliff Richard. So the sound recordings only last for 50 years, and performances last for 50 years. So, um, you know, an, an early Elvis Presley recording of um, You Ain't Nothing Like a Hound Dog would be, about to com would be coming out of copyright. The sound recording would come out of copyright. The performance would come out of copyright. And the only people to get paid from sales of that uh, recording would be the, the, the people who, who wrote the music and the lyrics. Um, and the U.S. have extended copyright protection in those categories for that very reason, but that hasn't been picked up elsewhere in the world. So you'll find that works will be out of copyright in some territories, but protected in others. Now, these are the things that you aren't allowed to do without permission. Doing one of these things is an infringement of copyright unless you have permission. Um, copying the work, now that could be um, photocopying, making an exact copy, or it could be uh, making a general copy, you know, writing it down again, 
but making some few adjustments. Issuing those copies to the public is another, um, is another infringement. Performing, showing or paying to the public. And uh, the public doesn't necessarily have to be the kind of wider public that we all think about. One of the key cases in performing and playing to the public involved two women's institutes. Um, the, the WI from one village invited the WI from the next village along to come and have a, you know, come and see our Christmas performance. And we, they had some singing and they put on a bit of a play. That was uh, held to be a public performance and they got sued by, uh, I think, a music copyright society. Broadcasting. Um, now, broadcasting includes um, transmission via the internet as well as through the air. So that a, a redefinition of what a broadcast is includes something that... Uh, a broadcast is now defined, in, in basically, as something that is... Um, that take, an event that takes place at a time of the broadcaster's choosing. Um, so if, if I have to look at it online or I have to switch on the television to see something at 9 o'clock, otherwise I miss it, that's a broadcast. If, uh, if I can go to an internet site and download something at a time of my choosing, something which is streamed or which I'm downloading, then that is uh, held under a different kind of right, which is called making available to the, to the public or communicating to the public. So the copyright legislation is, is adapting to converging technologies and converging media. Adapting is a restricted act, so if I want to take a novel and translate it into French or turn it into a stage musical or make a film out of it, then that's an adaptation. And storing in an electronic medium is also a restricted act. Um, and there are a number of others. Um, rental and lending, kind of thing that Blockbuster does. If, if we buy... Um, if we buy a, a DVD in our price or somewhere like that, then we might pay 10 or 15 pounds for it. Blockbuster would pay about 100, 150 pounds because they're buying the right to rent and lend. Uh, the next two you uh, are really targeted at piracy, so I'll, I'll miss those. Um, providing the means for making infringing copies sounds like it's to do with piracy as well, but it has an institutional... Uh, uh, impact on the university because we provide staff and students with uh, access to computers and other pieces of equipment that could make copies. And if we're not careful about our um, uh, computing rules of conduct and, and guides to good practice and so on and student, uh, student registration regulations, then we could be held to have provided the means for making infringing copies. So some, that's something that the university takes care of at that level. Providing uh, premises or equipment for infringing performances, we'll forget about That's really kind of bootleg recordings of rock acts and so on. Authorizing infringement. Now, that could be something that seems quite casual or innocent, where um, you know, a course team asks students to go and make a copy of something. If we're telling students to make a copy of something, then we better make sure that we have the right to tell them to make those copies. Otherwise, we'll be authorizing them in, in making an infringing copy. And uh, these two, I've, I've highlighted these because this is from a slide from a different presentation where I was talking about changes to the legislation. And this new uh, legislation came in about two or three years ago where uh, publishers and other rights holders are now increasingly putting technological protection measures around their electronic content to try and prevent piracy. 
I think, um, I mean, I think it's a lost cause because at any point, if you, you can lock something up, but in order for a licensed user, you know, if I sell it to someone, I want them to access it, so I give them the key. And if I give the key away, then I'm no longer, it's not particularly secure. And there have been a number of attempts through the years, going all the way back to audio cassettes where music people tried to put a spoiler signal into LP records at one point to try and prevent them being recorded on audio cassette. They've, it's just a history of repeated attempts and repeated failures. But um, now, for the first time, it's got this legal backup, which says it's, it's an offence to try and get around one of those technological prote protection measures or to remove or alter rights management information. Um, this, is, uh, this is also a problem in the research area, suppose, because as we'll go now, you can see there are a number of things that you can do whether the rights holder wants you to or not. And this is an attempt to try and get a balance between an individual's right to benefit from their work and to stop other people from ripping them off, and society's wider right to benefit from the work of its members. So this is a, an attempt to get that balance. I'm not entirely sure that they've got it right, but this is, this is what it's trying to do. One of the permitted acts is uh, based on a part of the Copyright Act that says that those, those infringements... Uh, occur if you perform any of the restricted acts on the whole or a substantial part of a copyright work. Now, if you look at that phrase, or a substantial part, you can take that to mean that if you don't use a substantial part of a copyright work, then you're all right, you're not committing an infringement. But substantiality is a qualitative judgment rather than a quantitative judgment, so it depends on how important to the work of, as a whole that the piece is, uh, as to whether it's substantial or not. You can copy and do perform any of those restricted acts on works, uh, as much of the work or as little of the, uh, of the work as you need in order to uh, fulfil your non-commercial research activity or for reasons of private study. And the non-commercial research is at the time when you're doing it. It's not, this isn't asking you to think ahead five years, will you ever commercialise the research? What are you engaged in at the moment? Um, and most university research, even if it's sponsored by a commercial company, would, be, uh, would fall under the category of non-commercial. It's, it's really aimed at the kind of research that's, that's primarily, that the primarily is functioning as, as commercial. Um, you can use works also in criticising them or reviewing them. Um, a film review programme on television, for example. Now, fair dealing here doesn't mean that your criticism has to be balanced and fair. It means that you can't use more of the work than you need to in order to make your critical points. Um, the prime case here is that um, A Clockwork Orange, which Stanley Kubrick um, directed, when it was first released, uh, it stirred up a lot of controversy in the, uh, in the red top press in the, in the UK. He withdrew the film from distribution in the UK, um, allowed it to be uh, screened in France and in other countries, but not in the UK. Um, now, a number of years ago, uh, Channel 4 had a documentary, an arts documentary series that looked at Kubrick's work, and they included a, an extract of around 11 and a half minutes from A Clockwork Orange. Um, he took action against them, 
And they were successful in defending the action by saying that they needed to have those 11 and a half minutes in order to criticize and review his work. If they'd ignored the film entirely, it wouldn't have been a fair uh, or, or a balanced view of his work. They needed to include it. And they were able to show that they needed the 11 and a half minutes, not 10 minutes, not 11 and a quarter minutes, but they needed the, the pieces in order to, to make their criticism valid. Um, fair dealing, again, for the purposes of report, reporting current events. The fair dealing means the same, no more than you need to. Um, but where you see this happen quite often is, let's say, BBC have got exclusive rights in a football match or a, another sports match, but you might see the tries or the winning run or the goal on the ITV news because they're, they're reporting a current event. Um, in teaching filmmaking and sound recording, uh, and for the purposes of bona fide examinations. And the, this is not just in uh, setting the question or answering the question. Um, it's not just the old-fashioned view of uh, an exam, you know, rows of desks in a, in a gym somewhere. It covers um, anything where the student is assessed and the, the, uh, the marks that they get affect the award, the final award that they get for the course. And it would cover, for example, PhD students writing a thesis and submitting it for examination. But it's quite tightly defined. It doesn't extend beyond the examination itself. So if I submit a thesis, um, that's fine. If I then think there's a making of a book in it and I want to take the thesis and publish it, then that's not. I, I would need to then go back and, and re-clear um, any, any third-party content that I included in it unless I was able to say I was criticizing reviewing it. So let's say I was looking at the work of a poet and I was, I was analyzing how the poet worked and included quotations from their work in, in my thesis, then that would probably still be available to me under criticism and review. These others are probably of less interest to you, but um, there, are, there are licensing schemes in place which allow you to, f to record off air and use them for educational purposes to photocopy and use for educational purposes. Um, I've mentioned the making of films or soundtracks. And to record at home off-air so that you can view a program at a more convenient time. The, the last one is an interesting one for the university. Um, the government had a review of intellectual property, which is still going on, uh, called the Gowers Review. Um, it looked at <coughs> this balance between permitted acts and restricted acts. And one of the submissions that, that we made was that uh, a VLE, or an electronic classroom, <coughs> excuse me, actually fulfills the same function as a, as a physical classroom. And there are some permitted acts which, which apply to teaching in a physical classroom, which we argued should also be carried through to an electronic space, a protected, um, password-protected um, virtual classroom. Now, the review accepted that, and it came out in their recommendations. It was a real piece of success for us. Um, so the, what they're working on now is trying to uh, redefine that in a way that can be drafted for legislation intended to come in towards the end of 2008. So that's, that's just kind of hot news there. Um, although we have no rights in, our, in images of our bodies, if we're in a public place, let's say we're walking along a high street, and someone takes a photograph and we happen to be in it, 
Um, we've got no comeback against that. That's just one of those things. If we're in a confined or a, a private space like here, and I took your photographs here, then I would ask you to sign a release or a consent form allowing me to do that. And um, your consent must be informed. This is particularly the case if um, the photograph is more than a photograph, if the circumstances mean that it's in some way attached to you as private or personal information, because then it's covered by data protection and also by legislation that covers medical records. So um, let's say you're a medical researcher or you're working at a teaching hospital as a consultant, you take some photographs of someone's condition or injury, then they may well be part of the patient's medical records. And we need to be careful about how we handle information like that. The consent must be informed, so I have to tell you, look, I'd like to use this for my own teaching purposes. I'd like to share it with colleagues in another teaching hospital. I might like to put it online. I might like to put it into a medical journal article that I'm writing. I might like to put it in a medical textbook that I'm writing. All of those are different kinds of levels of consent and information that I need to give to the patient or the person taking part. It's much more strict. In, in the medical context, but it applies in other places as well. So if I'm asking you, can I take your photograph, I'm really obliged or I have an obligation to tell you why I want to take the photograph and how I might use it. The consent has to be freely given. I can't ask you just as you're slipping under the anaesthetic or the day before even if you think that if you say no, I might take the, you know, remove the wrong toe. This final bit, access to premises, this is kind of related to copyright, but not, but not specifically copyright itself. Let's say I want to go to the, um, well, the, the, the most recent um, instance we have is we did some uh, photography at the uh, Natural History Museum at Tring, where the exhibits are not protected by copyright. So we could technically just take photographs of them, and that would be fine. But in order to get to the exhibits, we have to agree with the museum authorities. How do we get in? Will they provide us with any additional support during the day? Can they close a gallery? And in doing that, they offered us a contract which, um, which acquired copyright in those images on behalf of the museum, had we agreed to it. So their standard, their standard contract said, if you come in and take these photographs, you pay us a set fee for the day because we provide facilities and staff. And in addition to that, we own copyright in the images that you take. We can exploit them fully. We can make them into postcards. We can turn them into tea towels and all those other merchandising things. You can only use them for this single course. If you want to use them in any other way, you have to pay us additional money. Now, we didn't agree to that but it is a possibility, so it's something that you have to be aware of when you're accessing premises. Now this is just to show how copyright is traded, and I'll whisk through it quite quickly. Um, you have copyright, the first thing you can do with it at the very simple level is, is split it up and say, well I'm exploiting, I'm, I'm allowing you to exploit my copyright in the UK, but I'm going to allow someone else to exploit it in America, or in the rest of the world. And within the UK, which is that multicolored bit, um, in the bottom right corner. I again start to split up the territory according to different kinds of media. So I sell a publisher the right to bring out a, a print book. I sell a television company the right to make a television series. I sell someone else the right to make a film. Andrew Lloyd Webber is going to make a theatrical production or a musical. 
and there are lots of other things like uh, merchandising because the characters are cute, so I'm bringing out lunch boxes and pencil cases and all those other things. Um, and there are electronic and dig digital, not digital, um, media as well. And what's missing from this is uh, what, uh, what agreement do I have with the publisher? Because I've sold them the rights to bring out a print book. Um, what, what about an electronic book? Um, because one of the ways in which copyright is anticipating and responding to converging media is just in that. Who brings out the electronic book? Is it the printer or the publisher rather? Is it someone else? Is it me? Do I retain those electronic rights myself? Now in the case of novels and trade press and so on, that's, you, you would normally license those electronic rights with the print rights to the same publisher. But in the case of academic journals, then one of the moves there may be that uh, we give paper print rights to the journal. We may also give them electronic journal rights, but you may as an author want to retain the right to make that, that article available on your website as well. Uh, one of the ironies or one of the frustrations of journal publishing is that they, acquire, they would want to acquire copyright in your journal article, uh, you submit it, it's published, uh, you then want to use that article in teaching your own students and find that you have to pay a licensing fee back to the journal because they own copyright in it. Why I'm able to license all these things separately is because I've retained copyright in the work. I haven't given the publisher the copyright in my novel. I've given them the publishing rights in the novel, which is a subdivision of copyright. And you can see how more the, the, the other sort of third dimension of this is that it's not just the difference between a book and a film which is licensed separately, it's also how you deliver that book or how you deliver that film to the readers or to the viewers. So print and e-book may be delivered differently. Broadcast and internet. We, we have a broadcasting partnership with the BBC and one part that we're discussing very closely at the moment is how do we make those programs available online? The BBC are making their television programs available freely online. Uh, we would want them to do that, but OU Worldwide may also license those programs, say, to a Swedish broadcaster who will also want to make them available <coughs> online. To what extent does the online activity of the BBC, which we support, interfere with OU Worldwide's ability to exploit the program online commercially? So markets and, and media start to overlap and converge. <clears throat> One of the outcomes of that is also between, if I could call it, narrow and open content. So that we may have narrow content which is targeted and licensed very tightly to a particular audience, and open content which is released very widely through something like OpenLearn. How do we balance those two? Um, and in the case of journals, you may say, well, okay, the journal um, licenses the complete journal, if you like. If I want to get all 20 articles, I subscribe to the journal. I'm not going to go to your single article on your own site, your self-archived um, article. But, but then with more sophisticated search engines, it's possible that you may be able to compile a, fact, a kind of facsimile journal by searching for all the articles on self-archived sites around the world and simply kind of bringing them together. So it's a real kind of um, area of 
concern and debate among rights holders and authors and publishers. Public service rights I put in really as a way of, of describing how these rights can start to be described in a way that's not specific to any medium. Um, this is what, what the BBC call their rights now. They don't talk about broadcast rights or online rights. They simply talk in terms of public service rights, which is anything funded by the licence fee, so as, as long as it's within the UK. So that covers both their broadcast through the air and their online delivery for that catch-up service that I talked about earlier. Um, DVDs can be sold and licensed according to whether they're going to be DVD on demand, which is through the internet, or in-home viewing, or the blockbuster example of renting it, or in our case, non-theatric rights, which is screening to an audience which doesn't pay, as distinct from cinematic or theatrical release, which is where you show it in cinemas and people pay for admission. And then, and what brings all of these things together is the access and use of computer-based systems. And one of the things that computer-based systems bring in is the ability to manipulate and rework and reversion material more than in the past. And that has an impact on something which runs parallel but is separate to copyright, which is moral rights. The right to be named as the author and the right to object to derogatory treatment of the work. Um, now, in the UK, you have to assert your right to be named as the author, and you often see at the front of a book, it'll say that the author has asserted his or her moral right to be identified. Um, and the integrity right in the UK can be waived. So quite often, uh, producers of television programmes or other kind of collaborative works will ask for a waiver of uh, moral rights. They also apply in quite a restrictive way, not in a full way, to... Um, to employees. Generally what the law says is that you don't have a right to prevent your employer publishing something that you've written but you have a right to say that you, you, should ask, you could ask for your name to be removed from it. Okay. Um, now how it's handled within the OU is that in our terms of uh, employment in the standard contract it says that although the university owns copyright in the course materials which you produce we undertake to consult with course teams or named authors if we're going to use those course materials in a different way. Um, and that's how that kind of moral right... It addresses... It's a kind of uh, quasi-moral right, if you like. It addresses the same kind of concerns about this not being my work anymore or being reworked in a way that I'm not comfortable with, in, but under contract rather than under the moral rights legislation. So... You worked on something and your work is sort of hijacked by a colleague. You have a right to have your name written that. Can you prevent the other person from hijacking your work? What do you, what do you mean by hijacked by a colleague? Um, do you mean I, I'm just thinking sort of if you're in some kind of collaborative team and you know, you're, you're sharing work and somebody else starts to write it up. You know? Oh, right. Moral rights don't apply to truly collaborative work where, it's very where you can't say, I wrote this sentence and this other person wrote this paragraph, where it's so mixed up that you can't identify one from the other. So if it's like that, then they don't apply. Um, if someone takes your work and passes it off as their own, then you could, yeah, you could. 
but I, I want to be careful here. I'm not talking about the normal kind of course team process where, you know, you submit a draft, it's reviewed, and you may end up with a draft that's a long way from your original. That's part of the process of being an OU course team member, and I wouldn't want to encourage anyone to kind of say, no, you have to publish how I've written it, or not at all. Um, one way of uh, trying to address um, these, this complexity is actually to say, well, let's make it less complex. You could, what, what electronic media give us and licenses give us is the possibility of licensing everything really, really tightly and in a very controlled way. So we, instead of, we just license to individuals and tell them that they can only read it in this room and nowhere else. That's a possibility. The, the other approach is to say, well, that's far too complicated. Let's not go down that track. Let's try and find a way of sharing it between everyone. And the open content movement came out of um, software, really, uh, a kind of way of developing software which said, here's my software. I know it's the best I can do, but I also think it's bound to have faults in it. If you can do better, you're welcome to use it. The only charge I make on you is that you have to share it back with me. So you put stuff into a kind of common area. I put my software in. Someone else reworks it, puts it back in. A third person takes their improvements, reworks that again, and again puts that back in for everyone to share. Um, so open content comes out of that. If we say that open source applies particularly as a, as a name, is usually used in connection with uh, software. Open content is usually used in connection with text, pictures, moving images, and so on. And the, 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 the basic kind of principles are you get a, a standardized license that just says you can use this for these purposes. It's very broad. Um, for You can use this for non-educational or you can use this for educational purposes. Um, content is still protected by copyright. Sometimes you hear of open content as be, being described as something which does away with copyright. You still retain copyright because in order to make the license work, someone has to own the copyright. So it's not copyright free. And there are a number of different initiatives and licensing templates. The GNU license came out of a GNU project, which was a software development project. They developed the software. They then wanted to release it in a very wide, cheap, free way. And they couldn't find a license that did that. So they developed their own license. And out of that came the GNU range of licenses. There's a similar uh, outfit called the Creative Commons, which I'll look at in more detail in a moment, because that's the licensing model that OpenLearn has adopted. And there are a number of initiatives looking at freeing up educational content under what's called open educational resources. So MIT was perhaps the, the first or, or the biggest name to enter in the early days. Rice University's got a similar project with something called Connections, and we have the Open Learn project. Uh, what the Creative Commons does is it has a range of standardized contract templates and an engine which generates these templates. It asks you three questions. Do you always want to be named as the author or don't you mind? Do you want it only to be used as you wrote it or don't you mind if people version it? And do you mind if people exploit this commercially or do you want to restrict it to non-commercial use only? So it only has those three yes or no uh, questions. 
according to your answers, it will suggest a license that it thinks fits your needs. Each license type has a symbol, which, um, which is to make it easily identifiable, or just as identifiable as the C in a circle for copyright. And each license is expressed in three languages. Ordinary language, so that it's understandable. Legal language, so that lawyers can argue about it. And machine language, so that you can do, uh, you know, computers can look for this and make it more interoperable. So that the, the machine can, can take a decision as to whether different bits of content are interoperable under the same license. And that URL will take you to um, a site that tells you much more about it than I can now. These are the only these are the three questions that you're asked. This is just looking very briefly at stuff on the internet. Um, there will be two kinds of license on the internet. One that we're familiar with, which is an explicit license that says you can do X but not Y with this material. The other is more difficult to. Um, Interpret. It's called an implied license, which is the kind of license that if I write to the Times letter page, I'm granting them an implied right to publish my material or publish my letter on the letters page. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written to them. And you could make a similar argument that say, if, if, if you didn't want me to use this material, you wouldn't have put it onto the net and made it available. Um, the difficulty is that you have to interpret the, the context. So... Um, this person has put it on the internet, I can access it, it's okay for me to use and read and share with friends, probably. Is it alright for me to build into course materials? Probably, but less definitely. So you need to interpret the, the, the context. And um, conferencing is, emails are just like publications, so you need to be careful of using student contributions, say, to when the VLE comes in, how are we going to handle that? If students contribute to a shared space and we want to build their contributions into next year's course material, let's say, we need to take care of handling that rights issue with the students because they retain copyright as the authors of the contribution. And the same kind of thing goes for defamation. Because an email is a publication, it carries the risk of, uh, of defamatory statements. So you need to be careful yourself about what you say in an email and you also, the, the university needs to be careful about whether we become liable for statements that are made by staff and students. So again, those are taken up by the terms and conditions of the site and general regulations around access to computing equipment. Right. Thank you very much, Richard. That's uh, very interesting. There are plenty of questions. Richard, what there you talked about, like, I, I can't remember what, what it was, fair dealing or something, but to do with current events. Does that mean that if you were making something, that there was a, a documentary about Iraq war or something, that you could actually use clips from the news without um, needing to get Yes, if you can get hold of them. It's, it's almost like the access to the premises. You might technically be able to use the clips and if you've got them or you recorded them off air and the, the quality's okay, fine. But if you have to go to a film archive and say, I'd like these clips, then they're going to charge you for that kind of access. Yeah. The second is how, how um, sites now like YouTube, YouTube, and so uh, yeah. and how is that affecting copyright now? Because now you can go onto the internet and more or less download 
more and more different. Yeah. Quite sometimes okay. material. Well, you need to be careful that I mean the stuff that's up on YouTube and and, and other networking um, sites like that is not always. In fact, it's very rarely cleared. So it may well itself be infringing. Um, and I think YouTube actually has been hit by, and I can't remember the big media company, it's but Viacom, but yeah. It's still up there. Now, now, that may be a tactic by Viacom because um, they may be coming to a licensing deal with uh, YouTube. One of the ways in which the Internet is changing is that rather than being at an individual responsibility, they're starting to look at the networks or the service providers and saying, let's treat you the way we would a radio station. So, you know, um, local radio has a license with the uh, music industry and every, you know, the DJ can't ring up and say, is it all right to play this track now? So they pay an annual licensing fee through a, a, a collective mechanism, which is then divvied up at the end of the year between all the rights holders. And a similar kind of process is starting to emerge on the internet where, where you say to someone like YouTube, okay, you can't stop people from putting this this kind of stuff up, but what you can do is pay us a license fee to, to regularise it in some way. So that's, that's the kind of comeback from the rights industry towards social networking sites. I think the intranet site's okay um, because it's 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 aiding colleagues to come and find them and know who you are. But I think you know if there's anything bigger than that, yeah, I think you need to capture the consent in some way. Some of this is just getting rid of the problem. There are grey areas where we could argue all day about whether we needed a consent or not. But if you have the consent, then there's just, you know, end of story. You just have the consent. Um, and lots of photographers and, and so on will have that as part of their everyday practice. It doesn't have to be very long. A couple of sentences saying, we're taking your photograph for X purpose, and you agree that we can do this. Sign. No? Are there any, uh, uh, any issues with assignments where you're, you might want to use um, something that's got a trademark on it um, or any other material which in its own might normally have a copyright? Um, I can think of various examples, for example, in the evolution course where I might want to use um, changing. Um, Mickey Mouse over time, which actually relates to important evolutionary principle. Yeah. Uh, to get that normally, we have to pay an awful lot. But yes. if I turn it into an assignment without uh, any issues? Yes, in an assignment, if, if it's not a, not a, not a self-assessment assignment, but an assignment where, that affected the student's final grade, yes, we could. Otherwise, those trademark things do become incredibly complicated. We, um, a number of years ago on a psychology course, we wanted to print a black and white Pink Panther. And the students stared at it for a, a period of time, and then they looked at a piece of white card and they saw a pink panther after image. Um, and we got approval, but because it was also a kind of trademark and, and so on, 
we had to follow it really, you know, exactly how far the end of the tail was from the tip of the nose and all that kind of stuff. It was tremendously compl complicated and involved. And, and um, I won't say the phrase that, that um, they use in Disney, but they are very protective of the mice. So they call Mickey Mouse the mice, and they, they really look after that very tightly. Um, so, for example, if it was a formative assignment, we couldn't do it. If it was summer to the then we could. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are there any other questions that so, aren't about avoiding? Just, just to pick up on that, I just encourage you to talk to us before you do that. And also, if you want to, you know, the criticism and review can free up material as well. So if you talk to us, we can help you in how you write the surrounding material to make it more um, appropriate under that criticism and review. Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to add to that, actually. It might be that you use paper rights as well. Yeah. If you really want the image in a course situation, you use paper. Yeah. Well, if you can, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's <laughs> well, just like an academic and paper rights. <laughs> we don't want Mickey Mouse to go, do we? Uh, okay. Richard, I'm confused about how you can reinstate copyright in something that's out of copyright. You mentioned the um, Natural History Museum. Yes. Items which are out of copyright, yes. yet they were reimposing copyright. I can understand how they wanted to charge you for yeah. access and yeah. lunch and whatever else, but how can you... I mean, it's almost as if I go and buy a book that's out of copyright. Can I then take it home and say, oh, I don't know what my copyright is. Oh, uh, right, well, that's... Yeah. That, I can't understand the story. What the Natural History Museum was saying, not, they weren't saying that the, um, the stuffed squirrel but that our photograph of it is protected by copyright. And images can be quite complicated. Quite often if you go to um, you know, an image archive, the, if you look at the small print attached to the license, it will say, we're giving you the right to use our photograph. There may be underlying rights in the image that the photograph contains, and that's your responsibility to clear. So you can get, I mean, for example, again, um, is this recording going outside the university? Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, on the, um, what's the what's the giveaway that we put in the independent? I can't remember. Open eye. Open eye. Got a photograph of Harry Potter from an image gallery, um, under those terms and conditions. Um, they did. They thought they'd behave properly. They put it on the front of Open Eye, and then we got hit by the lawyers from MGM or whatever the film company was, saying, um, well, you may have got clearance for the photograph, but not in the underlying rights of, of Harry Potter. So we had to sort that out. So you need to be careful of that. Your, your talk about the book is a really interesting illustration of the difference between books and printed things and online or electronic things. If you, if you have a copy of the book, let's say it's not out of copyright, you just have a copy of a book that you bought this week, it's a really good read, you own the book. You don't own copyright in the book, but you own the paper and the ink, and the physical object. And if you read it and you really like it, you can lend it to a friend. Or you can donate it to a charity shop, or whatever you want. Or if a library subscribes to a, a paper journal, at the end of the subscription, they can still, you know, no one's reading it, so they end the subscription. They can still put the paper copies onto the library shelf and researchers are able to access it. That's because there's a concept called um, the doctrine of first sale, 
which, which applies there. As soon as I've bought something from you, your interest, you no longer own it. You may continue to own copyright, but not the thing itself. As there's no thing or no physical object with an online resource, that doctrine doesn't apply. All it applies is the license. And if the license says to the library, once you finish your subscription, you can no longer access the back copies, then no one can. Or if the license says you're subscribing to this journal, not your friends, you are, I can, then I can't lend that to my friends. So online really alters things tremendously. The license then becomes kind of paramount rather than the ownership. So the model, the kind of business model changes from a, a model based on ownership to a model based on licensed access. Uh, okay, we have one, one last question before we close. So, um, uh, Amazon um, uh, allowed people to sort of look inside a book online so you could see, you, know, you could read a chapter. Yeah. Or, in fact, a short story in a book or, or some poems. Is yeah. That, how much can they actually allow? They, and the same with Google is doing the same with digitizing books, uh, allowing people to look at some pages of well, it, it, slightly different models. Amazon, Amazon worked with the owner of the book. So, and there's a little, you know, if you go to an image that doesn't open and allow you to read inside, there'll be a, a line underneath that says, if you want to know, you know, publishers, if you want to know how we can allow people to read inside your book, get in touch with us. So that's kind of with consent as a, as a promotional device. Google is, is running into a lot of trouble with the uh, digitized library or whatever the project's called because of copyright um, as they they're, they're trying to extend it beyond out of copyright works now they're starting to talk about more up to date and, and works that are still protected by copyright and they are starting to hit lots of problems okay thank you okay. very much Not uh, at all. That's it. Uh, I'm sure there are other questions people would like to ask and now was never going to be enough to not least because of my, of my fault. If you do, if there is something that comes up, just drop me a line. You know, I'm happy to, happy to talk. I can vouch for the fact that if you do see Richard walking across the Beryl Cafe and you've got a question, he will answer it there and then for you. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Richard. Uh, thank you all for staying as well. Thank you, Richard. Thanks. Thanks a lot.